today we are joined by Hayat who is an incoming student at Harvard and is the executive director of Cow Evo Labo a non-profit organization that works to reduce the opportunity gap in education through tutoring mentoring and advocacy she was also a teen student leader at We Are Family Foundation Hi Hayat welcome to the show Hi thank you for having me So just to start us off you're a black woman living in America mm-hmm. what is it like living in a country which has been known for a number of racist incidents where the foundations of which have been built on slavery especially as a woman as well yes well for one thing it's not easy <laughs> i think i've been lucky in regards to how i've experienced racism in the united states if you can call that lucky um and that i live i mostly lived in predominantly black areas so i was rarely um exposed to all the racism and sinister parts of the country that i live in um i think the first time that i got exposed truly to the us as racism is when i moved to more predominantly white areas and i just saw how people who i considered my people you know we're living in the same country together they're my neighbors um didn't really view me as in the same level as them and even in the most smallest stuff you'll notice this um microaggressions um how as a black person you're constantly dehumanized and then further as a woman you're dehumanized in a different but you know similar level so living at the intersection of those identities has allowed me to see america for all of its bad parts and at its lowest but it has also allowed me to find community and fellow black women that live in this country and just allowed me to see america also for all of its best parts and all the highs it has to offer that's that's really interesting thank you for that just to you 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 mentioned the sense of community the sense of solidarity do you want to tell us a little bit more about that yes for sure um i think what people tend to naturally do in places where they are alienated or dehumanized or just shown that they're different and that they're consistently othered is they try to find people that look like them and connect to those people and i think that can be especially said about the black community here in the us um i know when i and there's another black person there that essentially not always but most of the time i have an ally there you know i and who understands the struggle the very unique struggle of being black in a country that doesn't like blackness um, so yeah i think there's a solidarity that exists between people specific people experience the uniqueness and also just a depth and ferocity of american racism and that's something that you will always share and that's it's such a like a profound experience which it's also a sad experience to share but it's also definitely like an experience that makes you glad to have your people right now just to add to these intersections you mentioned that the you have a very different set of experiences being a black woman in in america right but you're also a black muslim woman and we know 
the kind of islamophobia which has risen across across the world in fact and especially in america with the election of donald trump in the last couple of years how how has that changed your experience living in america oh yeah definitely um i think the interesting part of having these intersectional identities is that the group of people that you consider community don't always reciprocate that just because of this other identity you have that they don't have. Um, and I think in regards to me being Muslim, um, although I experienced um, racism like a black person would since I am a black person, I think it's hard since you won't necessarily experience that same level of solidarity as if you're only black. Um, there's still Islamophobia in the black community and there's anti-blackness in the Muslim community. So you're often felt like people who are your community in places where you're supposed to find comfort and um, essentially solidarity are also places where you're finding resistance and animosity just because of this other differing identity you have. And that's definitely a tough thing to go through. And it also just um, separates you a lot from your community. And it's not easy to choose a community. You know, I can't just come on and be like, I'm solely black or I'm solely Muslim, you know, because these are things that I am at the same time together. I can't like pause one or, you know, put a stop to it and be this one identity. Um, so I think being a black Muslim in this country is interesting because you're experiencing essentially racism and animosity from within your own community, which is very heartbreaking. And do you think that the sense of community witnessed a change post or during George Floyd's institutional murder? Hmm. I think I can speak to the Muslim part of it. I think George Floyd's murder um, helped open non-Black Muslim eyes to the anti-Blackness within their community. Um, it was a period of where they had to reckon with their racism, you know, and recognize that our community is not perfect and there are things we can work on that would help people who have this Black identity and are also Muslims feel more welcome here and feel more safe within the community. Um, and to the Black issue, I think I don't know if it did much in regards to that, but I think it showed that as long as you're Black, it doesn't matter what else you are, you know? It doesn't matter if you're Muslim. It doesn't matter what profession you have. It doesn't matter how many kids you have, what you do. Um, your Blackness is a target, and that's what people are going after. And I don't know if that created deeper solidarity or if that helped um, Black people recognize Islamophobia within their community, but I do think it definitely opened a lot of people's eyes to um, just how hard it is being a Black person in this country. So this is something that we're going to come back to in a bit, but before that, if I'm not wrong, you live in Minneapolis as well, right? Yes. And this is exactly where we saw all the events of George Floyd institution murder take full. So what was that experience like? How do you saw Minnesota change? How do you saw your, your own state and city change? Yeah, um, 
again, it wasn't an easy experience. I think it was interesting being at the heart of it because George Floyd was not the first incident of police brutality in this country. You know, we saw what happened in Baltimore and we saw what happened in Ferguson. Um, and we saw all those cases, but even though country, they all felt so far away, you know, um, they weren't happening within your state. Um, but when you see like the streets you grew up in on the news and as the site in which a fellow black person was killed, I think it's definitely hits closer to home and it definitely hurts more. Um, I think for me, it was just like looking around and saying, oh, that could have been any one of my brothers. It could have been any one of my friends um, because it happened so close. Um, in regards to how the city changed, I think, I don't wanna say that George Floyd's death changed the city for the better because I don't believe that. I don't think he sacrificed his life or that it should have taken him dying to realize that there was something wrong within our police force and our government at large. But I do think it opened a lot of people within Minneapolis's eyes to see that there's also things wrong within their city. And then this issues don't only happen in Baltimore or Ferguson, but that they also happen in their own backyards. Um, Minneapolis is a city that's known for being traditionally liberal. And when it comes to traditionally liberal cities, um, there's this horrible thing that happens in which they choose to leave the past behind in the sense that systemic racism still exists, but they just choose not to address it and just pretend that it's not there, which doesn't do anything but just exacerbate the issue. I think George Floyd death definitely forced people in this city to recognize that Minneapolis may be traditionally liberal, all of our politicians may be Democrat, but we also have very deep underlying race issues that we have to address too. But as you said rightly, that this is not a past that has been left behind, right? And it's seen every single day in forms most explicitly of microaggressions or even of racist policing. So would you mind telling us a little bit more about how this form of racist policing which has developed, how did this connect to a form of empire of colonial of colonialism, which developed in the United States in a very particular environment and how that shapes the experiences of racist policing even today? Yeah, um, I think what's so interesting about George Floyd's case and racist policing is that it's so easy to chalk it up to something simple. You know, it's so easy to say that the man who killed George Floyd was a racist or the people who are killing black people every single day are simply just racist. But I think that's far too simple to approach. What we're seeing is systemic racism at work. It's a deep underlying issue, and it's an issue that connects way back to colonialism and how it set up um, race structures. Uh, so in order for colonialism to work or in order for colonialism to thrive as it did, there had to be um, a system that differentiated colonizers from the colonized on a deep intrinsic level and that system needed to be based in white supremacy. And it was a hierarchy that positions colonizers as inherently superior to the colonized in order for them to justify all of they were doing. And what was birthed from that system is, um, is a world in which black people are consistently dehumanized. I mean, that's what the system was set up. It was set up so it could dehumanize black people in order to justify 
them being conquered and them being enslaved. Um, and when you have people being so dehumanized on such a deep intrinsic, it's very hard to change that, you know? That doesn't just turn off because the slave trade ended. It doesn't just turn off because the Emancipation Proclamation was signed and slaves were now free. Um, this is now something that's in the fiber of our nation, you know? Um, and especially in the end of slavery, um, as I mentioned earlier, even though slavery ended, the system didn't end. So they couldn't no longer use slavery as a way to uphold the system. They needed other ways to uphold the system. And that came in the form of policing, in which Black people were technically not owned anymore, but they were so heavily policed that it didn't represent such a shift from their former enslaved status. Um, and this heavy policing um, changed and adapted and worked into what it is today. And that is a policing system that discriminates against Black people, and that is disproportionately jails and disproportionately murders Black people. So I think it's interesting since all of this just ties back to the fact that colonial structures created the system, and this system to this day, it being perpetrated is why George Floyd is not alive, it's why Mike Brown is not alive, um, and it's why we're seeing more and more Black men get killed each so you mentioned the importance of colonialism and trying to understand the kinds of racist structures which have been, which have been put into place now and which, which play together to create this racist country even now, to uphold this racist country even now. So, but at the very same time, this is a very different form of colonialism which we saw in the United States as compared to, as compared to in the United Kingdom right, where Britain was the colonizer. But we see that these microaggressions, that these forms of racist policing are in place even there. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about the difference in the nature of umpire, possibly, which existed in these two countries and what and how that has possibly impacted the, the students, the people, the, the Black community in specific in, in both of these countries? Yeah, um, speaking of... Great Britain. I think what was very interesting from George Floyd's death is that it sparked movements across the world and it forced different countries to reckon with their own racist past, you know, beyond like they essentially established the fact that this is not an issue. This was a worldwide issue. Um, and this especially happened in Britain. And when this happened in Britain, there was a lot of people saying, oh, this is a US problem. And why are you guys bringing it to the UK? It doesn't affect us. Um, and that couldn't be further from the truth because as I mentioned earlier, what colonialism did is it created a structure where black people were dehumanized and put down. And that was colonialism at large. So it was colonialism happening in America and it was colonialism also in what Great Britain was doing with their empire. So I think this structure of is what created racism and it is why racism is a global issue. Um, in regards to if racism is different between Great Britain and the America, it definitely is. But I think, um, and I'm gonna quote like a rapper, you know, barely racist is still racist. The least racist is still racist, you know? Um, and Britain boasts about being different from the US because they ended their slave trade earlier and they ended enslavement earlier, but they also created the structure in which um, 
they they created um the high since great britain was the greatest um colonial influence they created the structure in which black people are dehumanized and it's also and that structure is as i mentioned earlier what permits racist racism in the u.s um racist policing in the u.s and it's also what permits racist policing and racism in general in britain so although they don't share the same history and they don't share the same timelines in regards to how they progressed um, what a lot of countries around the world do share is that colonial structure of race. Um, and that's why we find similarities and why Black, Brit um, Black Britons were so able to closely relate to the issue of George Floyd and say this is an issue that also affects us. So the sense that I get from a lot of what you've said right now is that one of the important things here is to educate people, right? That we need to be aware of a racist past, of how there are systems of racism which were created, in fact, by particular countries, which is unfortunately not yet acknowledged. That is something which critical race theory aims to do. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about what critical race theory is and what the controversy surrounding it is? Critical race theory is legal scholarship and it's also an academic movement um, in the United States and it seeks to critically examine the intersection of race in US law and it also works to challenge mainstream American liberal approaches to racial justice. Um, so critical race theory's goal is it's essentially to uh, essentially work to play America's past and also um, and also how we can use that past to shape our future, you know, also paint the way forward. So this all seems great. What is the entire controversy regarding that? I think the biggest controversy regarding critical race theory is that, as I mentioned earlier, people have a hard time. It's not a comfortable topic. It's not an easy topic. And a lot of people who are not um, affected by the history of America's racism do not wish to really explore it. You know, they wish to dig it deep, you know, out of sight. And they don't want that brought up because to them, it's a burden. Speaking about this is a burden. Talking about how this country is one in which its legacy is a legacy in white supremacy is, it's not an easy one to reckon with, you know? And especially if you don't have no skin in the game, if you're not being currently affected by America's past, then there's no reason for you to be interested in exploring its past at all. So I think, yeah, I think the biggest issue why critical race theory is such an issue is because people have a hard time feeling uncomfortable. When they have a hard time feeling uncomfortable, all they really want to do is just bury it and get it like out of sight and not have to think about it. And critical race theory is something that forces you to think about it. It forces you to reckon with our nation's history. And it forces you to recognize that this history is one that is still affecting Black Americans today. So again, the sense that I do get from here, what I understand from all that you've said here, is that it's about the ownership of what this country is and who it is for, right? to try and understand as to whether this is a racist country or this, or it's a country which is guiding the entire world, right? It's a hegemonic power which is guiding the entire world. It is this liberal democracy which is guiding the entire world. 
And that this is the kind of discomfort that we feel when we are discussing critical race theory, because people do not want to understand, they do not want to grapple with the racist history, the colonial history of the United States. So what is the role of Black Americans in that regard in shaping the history and narrative of what the United States is? How has Black Lives Matter affected it? How has critical race theory affected it? Black Americans, I think, have played the greatest role in the development of this country. Um, I mean, when we think back to this country's origins and beginnings, it was built on the back of Indigenous people and also the back of Black Americans. Um, and we see it here today, uh, Black Americans continue to carry this country now on their figurative back. Um, and, and we see that in how it's usually just Black academics and Black professors pushing for critical race theory. Um, and it was also Black people that were at the head of the George Floyd protests and, and also Black people just advocating for the prioritization of Black lives and making sure that Black voices are heard. Um, so yeah, so I think Black Americans have played the greatest role in moving this country forward, but also allowing it to recognize its past. And I think the greatest reason for that and that for Black Americans, America's legacy of racism is not just a legacy. It's something that influences their daily life. You know, all Americans have inherited the legacy of America's racism and white supremacy, but Black Americans also inherit the struggles of they also inherit all of that trauma and they also inherit all of the problems and issues that come with it and which we see them being played out today in racist policing and microaggressions and whatnot. Um, and I think the biggest thing about critical race is black Americans are pushing so hard for it because it establishes the fact that while race is a social construct, racism is not merely the product of individual bias or prejudice but it's also something so deeply embedded in our legal systems and policies. And if we are refusing to recognize that racism is embedded in our legal systems and policy, then how can we read out that racism from these legal systems and these policies? So I think, yeah, we, at the forefront of these movements, we see Black Americans because we are the people being affected and we are the people that are having to carry the burden of America's shoulders. There is, in fact, this argument which I've heard very often that America, American democracy has been expanded by the minorities, by the Blacks, by um, queer people, for instance. What do you have to say about that? That's definitely an idea I agree with. Um, and it just all comes down to the fact that the people who have the most skin in the game are always, and sadly, this shouldn't be the case, but they are more than likely going to be the people pushing for change. Um, America, I think there's this very great article by Nicole Hannah-Jones in which she asserts that America was not a democracy until Black Americans made it one. It is, and this also goes for other minority groups that had to push for the rights and that had to push for America to become better. It's easy to see America as the country it is today, even though that country is so far from perfect and so far from um, just, but it's also easy to see America as the country as it is and say, oh, that's the country it's always been. But that's not true. It's a country that's been shaped by the underdogs. And it's a country that has been consistently pushed to be better by the very same people that they were putting down and dehumanizing 
and causing trauma too. Now, just to take a step back, we were discussing the ownership and the narrative, right? So just to push you in a more historical direction, how is this ownership or narrative of American history, of what America stands for, of what America is, of what America's reality is for that matter, how is this ownership or narrative impacted by the history of empire and, and slavery? Yes. Um... I think it's very impacted by empire and slavery. Um, and I think to highlight this, we can just take a step back and even like taking a step back from America, just in general, countries in general, we see that the most powerful countries and the countries that are thriving economically right now are former colonial powers. Um, and the reason for that is colonialism, even though it has technically ended. I think colonialism is still being perpetuated in many ways today. But even though official colonialism has ended, um, its structures are permanent. So it left behind structures that made it so these countries would always thrive. So we see this specifically in the US in regards to race relations. Um, we see that the United States is so successful today, largely economically specifically, largely due to the history of slavery and the fact that slavery um, created such a thriving economy for them and that economy continues to exist today. So we see the fact that um, colonialism and enslavement essentially set the up for success, you know? It set it up in a way in which it will continue to be a superpower. So we see this specifically in the US and that enslavement, is, its history of enslavement continues to influence the country that it is today. You're a student at Harvard, or you'll be joining Harvard very soon. And this has been a historically white institution. It has been an institution which has shaped the nature of slavery, of, of, of thought which has impacted or influenced slavery or justified slavery even, or, or, or white domination. How does it feel entering a space like this? I think it's a combination of emotions. On one hand, you feel great pride in the fact that you are able to make it to a place in which your ancestors and those who came before you couldn't. But it's also the secondary feeling of, I would say a little bit of guilt because you know you're benefiting from an institution that upheld America at its worst. Um, a very white, a very elitist institution um, that continues to dive off of um, America's dark history and continues to thrive off of um, all that America's history has created today. So I am very proud that I've been I managed to get to this place, but it's also this very deep recognition that this institution exists today um, because of all that Black Americans and other minorities have suffered through. Um, Harvard was the first university established. It was established by funds from slavery. Um, and I think recognizing that, as well as all you've done to get here, are equally important. Um, 
So yeah, I would say it's a combination of emotions, but it's also just a deep recognition that whatever I gain from Harvard, it has to be something I put back into my community and be some sort of, I can sort of say that is where Harvard started, but this is where its impact has to end. I can use all that I gain from it for good and to change America for the better. And how do you think the university itself has been dealing with it? Do you think it's been doing a good job? I think there's always more to be done. Um, I think it was very recent when Harvard came to terms with its past and its history. Um, and even when they did come to terms, it wasn't them completely admitting everything and it wasn't them completely recognizing all that Harvard continues to do to perpetuate elitism and continues to do to perpetuate white supremacy. Um, I am proud that they have made statements, but we can also see even in the recent resignation of Professor Cornell West, that Harvard is so far from perfect and they have a long way to go to make it up to black Americans and to make it up to minorities living in the US. And they have a long way to go until they hold themselves accountable. So what for you is the way forward in terms of Harvard in, in general or the broader movement in, in specific? What are the aims of anti-imperialism or decolonization? And are they the same as those of anti-racism? And do you think that these can both work hand in hand to any, uh, to any extent? Yes, definitely. Um, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of what we see today in regards to racism is influenced by imperialism and colonialism and destruction. So I definitely do think anti-imperialism and anti-racism are two things that cannot be separated. They will always go hand in hand because to be anti-racist is to be anti-imperialist. Um, and in regards to the way forward, I think the general goals of the movement are, the first step is always recognition. Just recognizing that this country's past is a very dark one. And it's also not just the past, it's a past that continues to influence the present. And we can only change our present situations once we recognize that past. So I think that's what critical race theory attempts to do. It attempts to recognize how our past made it so not only, it didn't make individual Americans racism, but it made it so that the greater structures legally were racist. Um, and I think once we do that first step, then we can truly think of moving forward in regards to how do we change those policies and how do we make it so Black Americans are not dealing with things such as racist policing and are not dealing with things such as unequal housing and unequal education um, and just get to the roots of all of these issues because I do believe that every single issue you see from climate change to education to policing are all interconnected in ways. And once we address one of them is once we begin to address all of them. So in sum, I think the way forward is first recognition and second action, um, whatever that action may be, whether it's um, abolishing the police and putting other systems in place that are far more equipped to handle um, all that this country is going through, um, whether it's improving schools in the inner cities, whether it's um, making more Black Americans economically um, 
make putting them in better economic positions, whatever that action may be, I think that action can only be birthed once we recognize all that is going on and how that influences all that is happening. And that's a very powerful thought. And this relationship between climate change, as you say, between schooling, between policing, these must be understood for us to be able to create better systems. And to be able to understand how to create these better systems, we need to be able to think of the world, to be able to envision the world in a separate way, right? Because currently we only, we only see of it in a very, very specific sense. And, and to a large extent, this is a very narrow and a very confined sense, which is why that something like climate change, we're not able to grapple with what kind of ways we could deal with the climate change because we're thinking of it through the same institutional frameworks. Definitely. So, now, before we end, I just want to ask you for a couple of resources. Do you have any movies, any books, any videos, any articles that you would recommend or any podcasts even that you would recommend to our listeners? Yeah, um, my favorite authors currently are also are the authors that... Um, write about these issues that I'm currently speaking of. Off the top of my head, I would say Audre Lorde is a brilliant author. Um, I love her poetry. I love all of her books. Um, and she's definitely like a good starting point in regard to recognizing um, these issues. I would also say James Baldwin, um, equally intelligent, equally um, awe-inspiring. I would say to start with his book, The Fire Next Time, um, which is definitely a powerful book. Um, also, I'm giving books recommendations because that's all I really consume. But I would say yeah. The Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire is a good way to see how education influences injustice and how education can also be used to dismantle justice. Um, also, Malcolm X, the autobiography of Malcolm X, I would recommend that to anybody wanting to go into this work or just who wants to explore racism in the US. I think he's a brilliant person, a brilliant writer. Um, those are from the top of my head. Uh, also, people to follow, I would say Nicole Hannah-Jones, um, Cornell West, Mahdi Hassan. They're all journalists and writers, and you can find their podcast and um, their works online. They definitely have some pieces that will really get you to think critically about these issues and how these issues are interconnected, and also just give a lot more answers than I can give about how we are going to move forward. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me.